Episode 52 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the podcast beaming at you from New Zealand that covers all kinds of issues in philosophy, theology, biblical studies, social issues, politics, and whatever I feel like ranting about. I am your host, Glenn Peoples, and yes, it has been a long time, but that's life. Get over it. I recently had the pleasure, the immense pleasure, of traveling to the United States for just over a week, and I had four speaking events while I was there. And the first of those was to Reasonable Faith in the Los Angeles area uh, with Chris Sandoville as the director. Uh, and it was fantastic to meet you if if you're one of those people listening to this. And what I spoke to that group about was hell as an apologetics concern, uh, which was I really didn't know how well it would be received. You kind of don't know in advance where people are going to sit theologically with with the subject that you're talking about and how they'll they'll react to what you're saying. But I have to say, uh, I was very warmly received and I was grateful for that. And the discussions that followed were really, really good. Um, but I thought I'd share it with my uh, podcast audience as well. So for your listening pleasure... I want to talk to you about hell as an apologetics concern. So without any further ado, let's get down to business. Star Wars begins with kind of a scrolling preamble, and so does this talk, and it goes like this. We don't generally like people to pry into our motives, but I want to share my motives with you. First, because I think that they're motives that in general we should share, and if possible, I want to help us to see that largely we do share them, and I want us to act on them. And this discussion of motives will then kind of awkwardly segue into the things that I have to say today about hell and apologetics. Here's what motivates me to say the things that I'll say here. Number one, I don't believe that the traditional view of hell is true, the doctrine of eternal torment. Now, we might not share that one. Christianity is a revealed religion. There are some things that we only know because God has revealed them to us. So, for example, if you were out wandering in the desert or across the hills, the doctrine of the Trinity wouldn't just occur to you. You wouldn't look around and say, you know what, this looks like the work of a Trinitarian God. We believe that God has revealed that to us primarily through Scripture. There are things that we only know because God has made them known to us in, in ways like that. And I don't believe that God has revealed the traditional doctrine of hell to us. That places me in the minority among evangelicals. But I think Scripture teaches annihilationism. That's the view that the lives of those who are not saved will one day come to an end forever. 
Now, that's probably where many of you and I don't agree. And that's why I got it out of the way first, so I can move on to the second thing that motivates me. And here, I hope we will agree more. What we call apologetics has a number of purposes. But I think one of those purposes is right here, to break down the walls of objection to the truth about God revealed in Christ, whom God raised from the dead, so that people will receive Christ and be saved. That's partly what drives me. But apologetics, or at least a passion for apologetics, does come with a risk that can actually get in the way of this goal. You know the expression, when all you've got is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Well, when you're passionate about apologetics, every concern raised about what you believe may start to look like a a liberal or a worldly argument to refute so that you can earnestly contend for the faith. But if that's always your response, if everything you hear looks like a nail that you need to bash in with your apologetics hammer, then you will never allow yourself to consider good objections to what you believe. And you, we, if, if we do this, will treat our own current set of beliefs as the gold standard by which we measure everything else. But the fact is, we could be wrong about a whole lot of things. We're not infallible. Here's an example that's been getting a bit of coverage in the last few years. Biblical violence. Now, one of the objections to the Christian faith is that the God we worship, so the story goes, is said in Scripture to be guilty of genocide, commanding genocide, specifically ordering the Israelites to kill entire civilizations, men, women, and children. That, surely, so the argument goes, is incompatible with the Christian message that God is good and God is loving. And a number of Christian scholars, including Nicholas Walterstorff, Paul Copan, and Matthew Flanagan, have sought to respond to this objection, not by dismissing it or trivializing the concern, but instead by saying something like, you know what, that's a good point to raise. That portrait of God, at the very least, should give us something to think about, a reason to look again at the data. On the face of it, that's a problem. And the way that these people have addressed the problem is by saying that perhaps many of us are just misunderstanding what the Bible actually says happened in the conquest narrative. Now look, maybe their arguments are sound and maybe they're not, but these are examples of what I'm advocating. If we all just said, look, we don't care what you think of genocide, full stop, there's nothing to even consider, then I think that we'd be doing a disservice to apologetics. That response would justly lead people to wonder if there is anything that we could affirm about God that we might grant creates a real conflict with the idea of God as perfectly good and perfectly loving. If somebody told us that scripture said that every day God required a sacrifice of live babies with all their limbs chopped off so that they bled to death in great pain, Would that make us think twice? Would we consider any claim at all about God to be in conflict with our belief that God is good and God is love? Surely there are some things that we just cannot sensibly attribute to a being to whom we also attribute the property of perfect goodness or perfect love. And that leads me That was the segue, by the way. That leads me to the subject that I want to talk about, hell as an apologetics concern. I want to set before you three 
propositions. Number one, this is not an argument. These are three independent claims. Number one, God is perfectly good and God is love. That's two propositions. But basically, that's what God is like. He's good and he's love. Number two, some people will reject God and they won't come back. And number three, God will decisively and finally deal with sin via divine justice. Now, I accept the truth of all of these claims, and so do evangelicals in general. Universalists deny claim too, that some people will reject God and will not come back. Everyone, they maintain, definitely will at some point be united with God and enjoy the eternal life of the blessed. Now, whatever problem they think they are solving, I think that their solution simply is not true, and so I won't have much to say about it here. For those Christians who do accept claims one and two, that God is good and loving, and some people will reject God and not come back, then the solution comes in Proposition 3. God has acted by sending his Son into the world so that through him people can be restored to God, turn again to their true purpose, and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. But as point two notes, not everybody will be so restored, and some people resist and reject God. So if they don't take part in God's solution to the problem of sin through Christ, then what happens to them? Now, I take the view, as do a number of evangelicals, that there is no plan B in creation for these people. If they're excluded from God's plan of salvation, then they are excluding themselves from the future, full stop. They've consigned themselves to borrow New Testament language to the current order of things that is passing away. They're choosing not to have a part in the future. God will not grant them eternal life. There will be a resurrection of the dead. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, as the New Testament claims, but they will finally come to an end. They won't be around in eternity. Now, those who hold to a traditional view of hell or anything like it, including modern, more moderate or metaphorical uh, views on the state of the lost, more moderate than, say, Dante or Jonathan Edwards anyway, the traditional view here is that if somebody refuses to have a part of the salvation offered through Christ, then God will choose to sustain them forever anyway, but they will endure intense torment, suffering, misery, or some other equally horrible state forever and ever in hell. Now let me say a word about, oh, more than one word, about what I'm going to call the new hell. Because it should come as little surprise that a view of God in which he brings about literally endless suffering for his creatures is going to make some people deny that God, so depicted, is perfectly good and loving. That seems like an intuitive reaction. I know that some evangelicals have become increasingly uncomfortable with the notion of hell as a place of the excruciating pain in body and soul that has traditionally been envisaged, and so they describe it instead strictly in terms of mental anguish and separation, or they've formulated the position called reconciliationism, where somehow all traces of sin are gone, but the lost, even though without all sin, still suffer endless miserable separation from God. But nobody in any of these camps can really let go of the notion of the endless, conscious, subjectively bad experience of punishment, i.e. suffering, or else you have to wonder on what grounds they think that they believe in eternal punishment at all. Part of the concern that some may have, 
and understandably so, is that efforts like these call into question the biblical basis for the traditional view in the first place. What has long been held to be the biblical basis of this view is passages of scripture that talk about flames not being quenched as an indication of burning forever or wailing and gnashing of teeth as an expression of suffering forever of eternal punishment seen as an endless process of dealing out punitive measures that are never completed and apocalyptic imagery of a lake made of fire in which fantastical creatures suffer and these are all seen as a snapshot of what hell will be like but if that's not really what this small handful of passages of scripture mean and I think it's not then the whole biblical case for the traditional view is being shaken what traditionalist apologists may be doing may be doing then is hanging on to this model that was created by this foundational interpretation of all these passages but only by tweaking it in such a way that it really cuts away the foundation on which it was supposed to stand namely these interpretations of these biblical passages so the moorings have been cut so that hell has become a free-floating concept, really not grounded in the teaching of Scripture anymore, but which must still be maintained and so tweaked to avoid philosophical objections for some reason. And look, even if you don't accept that description of things, the very least we can say with certainty is that the new hell that some evangelicals embrace, seeking to remain traditionalists in their view, without falling prey to the objection from perfect goodness and love, whatever virtues you might think this new hell has, it is not the traditional view of hell. When Tertullian described the enemies of the church suffering in fire as a spectacle that would delight the saints, a reversal of the circus in which the Christians suffered, when Minicius Felix said that the lost would suffer in a clever fire that burns without consuming, and when Augustine of Hippo went out of his way to say that people can indeed burn and suffer pain without being consumed, because after all, the soul can suffer without being consumed, being immortal, and when Jonathan Edwards wrote of sinners being ready to fall into hell like a spider dangling about the fire, and when Charles Spurgeon mocked the idea of a metaphorical fire, saying that you can give him as many metaphorical blows on the head as you like, or just any other examples that you can think of, you can be pretty sure that they were not talking about anything that resembles this apologetically refined version of eternal torment. So not only, in my view, is the new eternal torment not biblical, now I don't think the old eternal torment is biblical either, but it's not historical either. And that's all I'm going to say for now about the new hell. So let's look at how traditionalists could face this problem. If you take the view of the teaching of Scripture that eternal torment is what awaits the lost, then you have an issue to address because Scripture also teaches that God is loving and good. We've all heard the justification that there is no conflict between love and justice. Now that's true, but that's not the issue here. You see, the question is not, would a perfectly good and loving God be just? I think we can all say yes to that. The question is, would a perfectly good and loving God cause anyone to suffer eternal torment? And while we're clarifying matters, 
Let's be crystal clear about what is not being considered here. The claim that it would be immoral for God to subject a person to eternal torment. That's not the issue here. Other than appearing here in my introductory remarks, that claim will not get so much as a mention in this talk. You see, I take the view that God has no moral obligations. Whether he does or not is a topic for another talk, one that I have given. But virtually all philosophers of religion and theologians would acknowledge a distinction between moral goodness and non-moral goodness. Some things are good, quite apart from any question of moral obligation. And that, so say I, is the kind of goodness that God has. Some acts promote goodness and so God commands them and then they become moral obligations. It's this goodness, however, that interests me. When we say that God is not just good, but he is the good, the exemplar of goodness or the ground of all other good, that's what his nature is and that's the kind of goodness that I'm talking about. Let me say a word now about human compassion. Because God commands us to be compassionate, even to those who deserve punishment. Even in cases where in the law of Israel an offender was to be punished with a beating, those handing out the punishment had constraints placed on them as to how many times they could beat him. That's in Deuteronomy 25 verse 3 if you want to look it up. Notice that this is not just a health and safety concern, although there is a pretty obvious health benefit in not being perpetually beaten. The hard limit imposed was so that the act did not become denigrating, or as the text says, lest your brother be degraded in your sight. Regardless of how particularly ugly the offence, and certainly regardless of the status of the victim of the crime, it would not have been good to punish a person in a way that robbed them of dignity altogether. Notice, however, in the Old Testament law that this principle did not rule out the death penalty. Execution was not a drawn-out and degrading affair, at least it should not have been, and God did not consider the death penalty to be inherently degrading or denigrating. I want to say a word now. This seems to be my way of introducing new subjects. I want to say a word now. I want to say a word now about secular sentimentality. Why would I want to talk about that? It's a testimony to the remarkable power of our theological commitment to shape our view of goodness that a scholar like J.I. Packer can look at John Stott's view, namely annihilationism, and suggests that it really might be driven not by scripture, but by, quote, secular sentimentality. That's the phrase that John, St- uh, sorry, J.I. Packer used. But is there, is there something secular about the view that the infliction of torment forever is less than good. What's secular about that? Is it really sentimental? A similar approach, albeit with a slightly different spin, is taken by Mark Driscoll. Some of you may have heard this interview between Mark Driscoll and Justin Briley on the unbelievable radio show out of London. And when... Mark Driscoll learned that Justin Briley, his interviewer, believed that women can be legitimately pastors. He immediately asked him whether he held to a traditional view of hell as a place of eternal torment. Now, uh, Justin Briley pointed out to him that he held to the same view of John Stott, uh, annihilationism, because Mark Driscoll looks up to John Stott 
But then Mark Driscoll explained his reason for asking the question, and this is what I want to draw our attention to. You see, Mark Driscoll explained, there, and these are my words, not his, there exists a liberal tendency to feminize God. And because Justin Briley thought that women could be pastors, he was probably more effeminate in his view of God, believing in a more effeminate version of hell, as though affirming that eternal torment is more manly somehow. That's what a man as opposed to a woman would do. See, God's enemies suffer forever. Now, apart from the fact that I think this is just false and it reflects a woefully distorted picture of manhood, what I think we can see here is that Driscoll, like J.I. Packer, kind of appears to be measuring the godliness and even to some extent the truth of the doctrine by how terrible, how awful it is. The more gruesome it is, the more mental toughness is required to believe it, then the more likely it is to be the truth about God. I've lost count of the times that I've heard proponents of the traditional view say, you know what, I really wish that you were right, Glenn, I really do. Why? If annihilationism is some sort of sinful concession to weak or effeminate or secular and sentimental visions of God and of justice, why do you wish that it were true, I find myself asking. Surely what you should wish is that you had the guts or the manliness to accept the hard, ugly truth. Now to any Christians who talk this way, who say to me things like, I really wish you were right, I think I know why you wish you didn't have to affirm this doctrine. And the good news is that it may have nothing to do with you being cowardly or effeminate. Not that women who feel this way are going to care about being called effeminate. Instead, it's because the action of subjecting people to eternal torment doesn't seem good to you. You intuitively recognize that that's not good or loving, and yet you affirm at the same time that God is perfectly good and loving. That's why you wish that I was right. As an example of a prominent evangelical who was willing to grapple with the problem, I'm going to draw on a patron of InterVarsity Fellowship, the late John Stott. During his lifetime, maybe afterwards, I don't know when this was said, but it's been said that if evangelicalism had a pope, it would be John Stott, not C.S. Lewis. Here's what John Stott said, and I quote, Emotionally, I find the concept intolerable. He's talking about eternal torment and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are a fluctuating and reliable guide to the truth and must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining it. As a committed evangelical, my question must be, and is, not what my heart tells me, but what does God's word say? And in order to answer this question, we need to survey the biblical material afresh, and to answer, to open our minds, not just our hearts, to the possibility that Scripture points in the direction of annihilationism, and that eternal conscious torment is a tradition which has to yield to the supreme authority of Scripture. End quote. I want you to notice how John Stott recalls in the manner in which he proceeded. He didn't jump straight from the problem to a solution of his own making. He didn't say the traditional doctrine is terrible, therefore annihilationism is true. Instead, the fact that there was a problem is what motivated him to turn again where to his source of authority, namely the Bible. He's an evangelical, was. 
it's important not to misunderstand that. And I think people do misunderstand and misread what is happening here. I want to quote from a blog. I'm struggling not to not to name the guy. I want to, but I won't. But here's a, a, a prominent evangelical Christian writer and blogger who says, he starts off by referring to Clark Pinnock, another annihilationist, but then he talks about Stott. Here's the quote. Note that Pinnock admits that he reached his conclusions about annihilation, not first of all on scriptural grounds. John Stott wrote about eternal conscious torment. Quote, Emotionally, I find the concept intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either, co- either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. Dot, dot, dot. Scripture points in the direction of annihilation. End quote. I was taken aback when I saw that this had been done. You see the impression that's been given. They're giving the impression that John Stott realized or thought that there was an emotional problem and so concluded that Scripture points in the direction of annihilation. And then he ends up claiming, see, look at the way that annihilation is motivated, not by Scripture, but by emotion. A few dots can cover over a multitude of sins. It's almost worthy of a study in psychology. And I, and I say that seriously and with no suggestion of derision whatsoever. To look at the way that people's normal intuitions about goodness and love are turned on their head when they're talking about the hell that they believe in. I want to quote from Norman Geisler in his Baker, I think I get the name right, Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics that he authored. Here's what he says about annihilation. Quote, Annihilation would demean both the love of God and the nature of human beings as free moral creatures. It would be as if God said to them, I will allow you to be free only if you do what I say. If you don't, then I will snuff out your very freedom and existence. This would be like a father telling his son he wanted him to be a doctor, but when the son chose instead to be a park ranger, the father shot him. End quote. So it looks like Dr. Geisler here is assuming that if annihilationism is true, then annihilation is a punishment directly inflicted by God. That's how he's obviously thinking about hell. But I hope you can see what this implies if the doctrine of eternal torment is true. Because now Dr. Geisler has to compare God not to somebody who ends the life of his son, but instead as somebody who locks him in the basement, straps him down and tortures him forever because of his decisions. How, I mean, how do you not see that coming if you're going to make an analogy like that? I'm reminded of a book that I read, uh, written by a relatively unknown author, who used to be somebody in the military who rescued people from prisoner of war camps. And now he's either a missionary or an evangelist. And I recall what he said when comparing the two situations, because he said that it's wonderful that he got to release people from temporary imprisonment and torture at the hand of the dictators who held them there. But that's nothing compared to the thrill of rescuing people now as an evangelist from eternal imprisonment and torture. Do you see the comparison that was unwittingly made there? Who is the tyrant now who is imprisoning and torturing people forever? Well, it's God. He's actually comparing God to the people who held people in prisoner of war camps and tortured them there. Now, of course, the traditionalist might want to abandon 
tradition at this point, saying that, well, the father would not be inflicting torture upon his son, going back to the Norman Geisler example, but just kicking him out and letting the natural consequences fall. And if this is the case, then you've got to give up the analogy that the father shoots his son because that's positive infliction. Instead, you'd have to ask what happens on the annihilationist view if the son is kicked out with absolutely no ability to provide for himself because there is no other source of food or warmth. If we want an analogy that compares appropriately to our relationship and with God, and the answer ends up being annihilation because God is the source of our life and being. But the psychological toll of believing in hell, the the traditional hell at least, is surely a heavy one if Dr. Geisler can let himself think of a legitimate comparison as a father positively punishing his son as an example that we're all supposed to sympathize with, as though he thinks that of course we'll have no problem with a man who tortures his son for the rest of his life, let alone forever. Now in the interest of time, I'm not going to dredge up further examples. Listen, People who aren't Christians are not moral idiots. If you tell them that a person who rejects God will not have eternal life because God won't give it to them, then they can understand that in terms of what seems like natural justice. You cut yourself off from God and you don't get what God provides, including life and being. It's like switching off your own life support. It makes sense. But describing God's response to those people who don't love him in terms that they can only compare to the people in this world that groups like Amnesty International warn us about because of their abject cruelty, these people, these non-believing people, are made well enough and their faculties work well enough to say, wait a minute, that's what a perfectly good and loving being does, according to you? The truth is that the majority of serious conservative Christians, but sadly not all, can look at historical examples of teaching about hell, the view that really deserves to be called the traditional view, and realize, look, something is wrong. Tertullian said, and I've mentioned him already, here's a bit more detail, said that just as Christians were tortured and burned in this life to the delight of the audience, we will be the audience in the world to come and we will delight at the burning and screaming of the lost and we can comfort ourselves in this life by imagining those torments right now. We can look at those unbelievers who hate us and we can imagine them in flames screaming and suffering and take comfort in that fact. That's what I didn't put those words in his mouth. That's what he said. Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, is quoted as penning the catchy lyrics, What bliss will fill the ransomed souls as they in heaven dwell, to watch the sinner as he rolls in the quenchless flames of hell. Now some Christians still do think that way, but most of them, including those who have a high view of the authority of Scripture, realize that they cannot coherently think about a God who is love in this way. Now, unfortunately, I think many are too attached to the tradition of eternal torment to rethink it. So they simply tone it down, compromise, remove some of the more lurid details and say less about it. Or they continue to hold to a view that exists because of a woodenly literal interpretation of, say, the book of Revelation. But they simply stop taking it literally in every detail, rather than rethink the meaning of the imagery altogether. I'll say just a little bit more about this notion that we are just caving into secular pressure. pressure. 
what of this concern that in embracing annihilationism and especially in presenting hell as an apologetics issue, we may simply be a case of trying to make Christianity appealing to secular culture, or as, as J.I. Packer claimed, caving into secular sentimentality. In the first place, I think it's a concern that reflects a profound ignorance of the context in which conditional immortality tends to find its strongest support. If you look around at the Christians who are embracing conditional immortality, with few exceptions, they are probably the more conservative evangelicals out there. If you read a book like Edward Fudge's The Fire That Consumes, it's it's basically a very dry conservative evangelical Bible study. There's nothing liberal about it. The liberals in this game are doing one of two things. They're either embracing universalism or else they're rejecting the the idea of eternal life altogether, but but they are not embracing annihilationism. So if you think this is a liberal movement, you've got it all wrong. Secondly, this concern about caving into secular sentimentality, being, being driven by sentiment, invites a rather unflattering to quoque response, which is where you say, well, you're doing the same thing too. You see, if you get to assess whether or not a belief is more sentimentally appealing and then claim that those who promote the belief must be motivated by that sentimental appeal, then doesn't that mean that opponents of the traditional view of hell get to decide that it's cruel torture and then make the judgment that you're motivated by cruelty? because you like the idea of suffering. And if you object to that, then maybe we could just stay out of one another's motives altogether. Ad hominem attacks are generally not the best way to debunk somebody's argument. Annihilationists could be the most liberal, misty-eyed sentimentalists in the whole world, and yet the claim that eternal torment is incompatible with a perfectly good and loving God would still be true. Thirdly, Of course we can agree that goodness and love are not identical with sentimental niceness. I'm quite happy to accept that. But that should not scare us away from ever trying to say that a truth about God really is more appealing or nice than a popular misconception. We do this all the time. When people point to the Old Testament conquest stories as examples of mass murder and genocide, If we know that they are misunderstanding the text and the reality is not as grisly as they think, then it's okay to say so. Don't worry that it might sound nicer. If it's nicer, then so be it. The same goes for the way that they might understand the Torah in general, or the commands of Jesus, or the New Testament authors, or the issue of hell. It's actually okay to acknowledge that we're made in God's image. God is perfectly good and perfectly loving. And the truth is that as a result we actually do find goodness and love to be more agreeable and nice. It's just, it's not true because it's nice. And lastly, if there are people who are rejecting the gospel and turning others away from it because of a belief that isn't even true, namely the traditional doctrine of hell, then how could we possibly, how dare we, in good conscience, sit by and let this happen? Now you might think, Well, that's not really the reason they're rejecting the gospel. There's probably a deeper issue of sin or rebellion or hurt for that person. And maybe there is, or maybe not. But even if there is, it is right to strip away the objections one by one, even if only for the sake of those onlookers who may be influenced. These discussions don't happen in a vacuum. 
if the traditional view of hell is wrong, if it's not true, then by saying so, we are doing a service for the gospel and for a world that needs fewer excuses to close their ears. The next issue is whether or not we get to define goodness and love. Because a concern that people might have about what I'm doing here is that maybe we're trying to take our human conception of goodness and love and project that onto God. Really, you might think, we just can't use our conception of love to say what God is like. So if we find the idea of hell as eternal torment unloving, and so we decide that it can't be what God would do, then we're just being humanists in the negative sense, making man the measure of all things, and judging God by our fallen, fallible, sinful criteria. Maybe divine goodness and love are just nothing like our concept of goodness and love. So while it would be unloving for us to keep people alive and suffering forever, it's not unloving for God. Okay, this, I think, is the most important thing that I'm going to say in this talk, so listen up. (laughs) The problem now is that the concept of divine goodness and love is completely uninformative. Imagine if I told you that my car is green, but when you arrive at my house, you see that it's red. And so you say, I thought you said your car was green. And I say, oh, it is green. But you have to understand that what I mean by green is not at all what anyone else means by green. You don't get to define what I mean by green. When I say green, I mean the thing that most people call red. What have I told you when I said that my car was green? I haven't told you anything. Even worse, I've misled you. I've given you false expectations. Or imagine, and this is a little bit closer to the doctrine in question, and maybe a little bit closer to home for some of you. Imagine if my wife told you that I was an affectionate husband and father. And yet, when you came around to our home for dinner, I swore at her, I beat my children, and at one point I dragged her out of the room, and all you could hear was screaming. You see, when my wife said that I was affectionate, what she really meant was that I have the characteristic that other people call abusive. And imagine if I defended what my wife said by saying, you don't get to define what my wife means when she says affectionate, right? I'm sure you've heard the line used by Humpty Dumpty and Alice through the looking glass. I'm sure you've heard it quoted at least. When I use a word... It means exactly what I intend it to mean. No more, no less. That's how not to communicate. When we hear biblical declarations like the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever or God is love, to use two good examples, the writer actually intends to convey something to us. I think the most plausible theory of meaning is that of authorial intent. These passages mean what the author intended to convey. But how does the author convey anything? It's by taking a concept that we already understand, like goodness and love, and then telling us that God exemplifies that concept. We already have a concept of goodness, mercy, love. These words already mean something to us. And in these two passages of Scripture, as well as others, we're being told that that is what God is like. It's one thing to say that God's ways are higher than our ways. Of course they are, but God is absolutely perfect. Our own love pales in comparison to His. He loves much better than we do. 
And yes, there may be times when our own finitude or perhaps our own sinfulness makes it hard for us to see how God's words and deeds quite fit with other things that we know about him. But it's quite another thing altogether to say that God is so completely disanalogous to us that when we say anything at all with human language about God, it's incomprehensible to us and may even mean the opposite of what we expect. We shouldn't use the mysteriousness of God to shield indefensible beliefs about God. Stated differently, our declaration that God is love should actually make a difference to what we are willing to attribute to God. If every time we are confronted with a claim about God that on the face of it is incompatible with a perfectly loving person, we brush the concern aside by saying that it makes no sense to me, granted, but I have to trust that God is perfectly loving. And so whatever God does, whatever I think God does, must be compatible with perfect love then what we're doing is that we are automatically privileging every characteristic that we attribute to God apart from love. That's because we are determining what God's love is like just by describing everything else that we believe about God. And we're not allowing our wider view of God to be informed at all by the claim that God is perfectly loving. So in practice, even if not in theory, our view of what it means for God to be loving just ends up being the view that God does what he does. And since God is love, the stuff that we think God does, no matter how horrible it is, must be loving. Now to the outsider, this is manifestly absurd. And that's not because of some sort of sinful bias against God. It really is absurd it's sometimes hard to figure out why God does what he does. I, I agree. God is sometimes mysterious, yes. Our own intuitions are affected by our own limitations and failings, yes. So a certain degree of epistemic humility is required. It could be that on any given instance, our inability to see how an action is compatible with perfect goodness and love is just a result of the fact that we're not perfectly good and loving. That's true. But nonetheless, God's character or nature places constraints on what he will do. And if God is perfectly good and loving, then that counts as a defeater for the claim that he will do something that, as far as we can tell, is irreconcilable with perfect goodness or love. A defeater from a fallible point of view, of course, but that is the only point of view that we have. And it's from that point of view that we must form all of our judgments about God. Consequently, if there is a concept of hell that appears to fly in the face of our conception of goodness and love, especially given the way love is described for us in Scripture, I say that because I'm speaking specifically to a Christian audience, then we have a reason to doubt that it's true. And that reason is here. The belief that God is good and loving. So, evangelical conditionalists hold to the view that they do because they think that it's biblical. Now, I've defended that position numerous times and responded to critics numerous times, and I'm happy to do so again. But it's quite appropriate for us to look at the question of hell from an apologetics point of view and ask whether or not we may be asking people to accept something that just doesn't make sense. A God who is perfectly loving, but who acts in a way that is incompatible with perfect love. You can certainly have a coherent concept of a deity who makes people suffer forever. 
They exist in non-Christian religions. These despotic beings who, who inflict the most heinous suffering on people. I don't think any of those uh, deities really exist. Those scenarios are not true. But they're not necessarily contradictory either. Because the deities that inflict these ghoulish torments are not thought to be perfectly loving. Indeed, some of those worldviews don't even have a concept of the devil. That role is played at times by the gods themselves when they're having a bad day. Let me make some closing remarks. I don't want you to adopt my way of thinking, our way of thinking about hell, just because it resolves an apologetic problem. I have not been advocating that you do that. The fact that a point of view does not create a problem of divine goodness and love is not proof that it's true. If it were, then here's another way to resolve the problem. Just become an atheist. You see, if you do that, there's no problem of divine goodness. But you shouldn't accept atheism because there are no good reasons to think that it's true. And there are good reasons to think that Christianity is true. No, you should only accept this way of thinking about hell if there are good reasons to think that it's true. Now, I think that there are very clear biblical grounds for this view and no compelling reasons to the contrary. And I also think that at a philosophical level it makes sense. It's God who gives us life and being, as well as redemption from death and the gift of eternal life. And so to reject the gift of God and to ultimately reject the very source of our own life and being is to reject life and being itself, leaving us with no grounds on which to exist. God certainly cannot be required to sustain the lives of those who have rejected him. Moreover, the biblical teaching about immortality being found in fellowship with God alone The biblical teaching about a vision of eternity in which all that exists is redeemed. The biblical teaching about the death of Christ as a substitute for those who are saved through him. And most emphatically and repeatedly, the the biblical teaching about the final destruction of the lost means that we certainly don't have to worry that in entertaining annihilationism, we're talking about something that's out of place in a biblical worldview. And it's not even the end of the world on historical grounds when we start digging and we realize that prior to Augustine of Hippo, the view that the lost will one day come to an end and be no more was actually taught by a number of important early church fathers in the late 1st and the 2nd and the 3rd centuries. Now that short plug for the truth of annihilationism may not convince anyone. The point is, the fact that it may solve an apologetic problem isn't why we should think that it's true, but there is an apologetic problem. And annihilationism, if true, explains how we can coherently maintain belief in a God who is good and loving without giving up on divine justice. And that fact should at the very least give evangelicals the motivation to go back to the biblical evidence and rethink hell, even if they don't ultimately change their mind. That's that. It is good to be back. I hope it's nice to have me back. As I have been doing some speaking recently, uh, there will be some new material for the podcast, so you can expect a couple more episodes in the relatively near or not too distant future, but I don't want to release them too soon, too close together, otherwise I'm going to run out of material again really fast. But it's a pleasure to be back. Um, I always love sharing this stuff with you, and I hope I hope you guys get something out of it. If you've got any questions, comments, or suggestions, please come along to the blog at 
what's my blog name? I've forgotten it. Rightreason.org. And there's a contact form there and you can send me a question or a comment or a suggestion for a subject for another episode. I'm always happy to hear from you. I don't guarantee that I'll be able to get back to you or to do so quickly, but you never know. I may do, but I do like to hear from you. Um, But that's all I've got for now. Uh, I'll see you again in episode 53. But this is Glenn Peoples signing off another episode of... Shout out to my little friend!